listening to Rattle and Pedal, diversion thoughts on marketing and growing professional services firms. Your hosts are Jason Malicki and Jeff McKay. So Jeff, I lied last time we did an episode. I claimed we were leaving intellectual capital behind us. We had done a five episode arc on this and I said we were going to move on to something else. And in fact, I think I promised listeners we would, or not. <laughs> so... So today I'm actually really excited. So we we have invited on the most talked about non-guest in the history of Rattle and Pedal. Um, and now he is officially a guest. So we have talked about Bob Bidet at least 20 times in 90 episodes. He comes up all the time, largely through just all the great work that he does at Bidet Thought Leadership Partners. And then also some of the work that he and I have done together through the years in profiting from thought leadership. So without further ado, I want to welcome Bob. He is going to talk with us about hits and misses in thought leadership. And Bob, let me just stop and let you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about how you got into thought leadership. And and then we'll kick into that, that world of hits and misses. So sure. fire away. All right. Thank you, guys. I'm a pretty old guy. I'll be 66 years old in June. And, and, and I, that means I've been doing thought leadership for many years, since 1987. So briefly, I got into thought leadership having been a business journalist for about eight years before that. And I joined a management consulting firm that was, was called Index Group back in 1987. The year after I joined them, they were bought by Computer Sciences Corp., so they became CSE Index. But I joined them in 87. They were about $40 million in revenue, 100 people. I joined them when they were an IT management consulting firm. They were consulting to CIOs about how to run the IT organization, which even back then, with some of the clients they had were, were pretty big organizations, some of which had billion-dollar budgets, you know, IT budgets. So- that was Index's focus as a consulting firm back then. And I was hired on to do, although we didn't call it thought leadership at the time, I was hired to spearhead their thought leadership activities, which were publications in print and PR, public relations, and some survey-based research we did of CIOs that turned into press mentions and that kind of thing, and and some material for our publications. So I've been at this game of thought leadership for 34 years and had the very fortunate opportunity for starting my career for a, a consulting firm that changed the game, you know, in hindsight now, thought leadership-wise, and changed the game in several ways, one of which was doing rigorous case study research, best practice comparisons versus worst practice comparisons. CSC Index jointly owned a client research program called PRISM. It's similar to the programs that the Corporate Executive Board and Forrester you know, have been running for years. So Mike Hammer and Index co-owned this research thought leadership R&D center, which had 130 or so sponsors at its peak, paying about $30,000 each to be uh, annually to be a sponsor. That was the place largely where indexes and, of course, Mike Hammer's thought leadership R&D happened. And out of that research, so that was one way that index changed the game, I feel, about how management consulting firms developed, quote unquote, thought leadership. Index 
also had an extensive, what they call multi-client services, where they would take dozens or hundreds of clients around to resorts around the U.S. and fed them golf and and educational programs, Mike Hammers and others, many others. And it became a, a great way to develop relationships, some of which became big consulting relationships for Index. And we also had publications, but McKinsey had had publications and BCG since the uh, the mid-60s. So we were not terribly different on the publication side. We, we had those two. But I think the biggest difference was that Index and Mike Hammer took and other folks that Index would partnered with in the late 80s and, and early 90s in doing thought leadership, quote unquote, R&D, Index did that a little or maybe a lot differently than most other consulting firms were doing it at the time. I stayed there for 10 years, 87 to 97. I had the fortunate opportunity of kind of being at the epicenter of the business reengineering concept, which as you both probably know, was the blockbuster consulting concept of the 90s. And I saw that firm, CSC Index's revenue, go from $40 million when I joined it in 87 to over $200 million eight years later, largely on the back of one big blockbuster idea, which was business reengineering. And then the wheels started to come off. <laughs> and then- <laughs> my camera left around 94, I think it was. And so it's like if you're at a drug company and you're head of R&D, the person who, you know, who invented your vaccine for, for coronavirus, he leaves or she leaves. And, you know, all of a sudden your R&D engine is starting to sputter. So by 95, Index is starting to go downhill and Index is out of business five years later by the year 2000. I jumped on a lifeboat in 1997, three years before the ship fully had gone under the water, and it started with a colleague, a CSC colleague of mine, Bernie Theo. We started Bloom Group in 98 to do essentially what we had been doing at different parts of CSC, helping smart people get published and otherwise get known for their expertise. Wow. What a great place to learn. <laughs> a rocket rise and... And crash. You you said several things in there, Bob, that really resonated with me. And well, let me take a step back. Right, oh Jason? boy, here we go take, again. Take, oh, take goodness. a step back. <laughs> you know, it's been said the the definition of a thought leader and what a thought leader does is you know a person who changes the way we think or or do business. And the time that index was coming to an end was the time I left my family's auto parts business and joined Anderson in 95. And I probably was one of the early consumers of your new firm thinking. And I can honestly say that your thinking changed the way I did business and thought about marketing. You know, Jason started off you know, talking about, you know, the promise he made to our listeners about intellectual capital series being over. But I don't think the series is ever over because at the heart of knowledge-driven firms is intellectual capital. It permeates everything. So I'm just so excited to have you on this episode and hopefully we'll have you for multiple, 
multiple episodes. So Jason, try not to make him mad. <laughs> well, I think I would have done that a long time ago, given how long Bob and I have known each other. <laughs> Probably have a couple times. You know, what I love about your opening story, Bob, and I, and I've, I know that story because you and I have, have worked together for a decade, right? So we know each other well. What I love about that story is, you know, in the setup, Jeff, we were talking about leads and content, content marketing, all this stuff. You never talk about leads. You never talk about marketing speak. You talk about how this was a blockbuster concept that changed the way people thought about technology and investments in technology. And then you talk about this massive movement that it grew and the revenue that coincided with it. And then you also talk about how it was really one big blockbuster idea that the firm discovered that yielded this incredible growth and, and revenue and economic value for, for CS and, and others, right? Anyway, my long-winded way of saying, is that how you define a hit? Is a hit when you've literally changed the way the world thinks about something and you've spawned a movement? Is that what it takes for, for intellectual capital or thought leadership to truly be a hit? I think, you know, there are multiple definitions out there of thought leadership. And and I look at it is as the, the evidence that a person or a firm, you know, people in a firm achieve as a result of developing marketing, selling, and most importantly, delivering a superior solution to a complex business problem. So I don't think one can call himself or herself or a firm can call themselves a thought leader on anything unless they have the client results that speak to the efficacy, the effectiveness of their solution. And going back to the example of CSC Index, Index had some, I would call, breakthrough client experiences in the early days of re-engineering when Index was, a, say, a 150-person firm early, say, 1990, 91. But then those successes, those client successes became harder for me and marketing to find. And I was looking for those client successes because my colleagues and I in marketing needed to collect those best practice client examples and put them in our publications. There's no stronger testimony, thought leadership or otherwise, to the effectiveness of a firm than having a client case study that speaks to to the impact that a firm has had on its clients. So those success stories became harder to find circa 94, 95. And so I know I'm wandering away from the question here. But I think thought leadership has to be earned and not just self-anointed. I think it, it needs to reflect that a person or a firm has indeed has a superior solution to a, to a business problem and has client examples that speak to the, you know, the value of its solution, that it, it really does work. Wow. You know, all this time I've just been saying just right in there that we're, we're thought leaders and we're leading. And now I know why that wasn't working. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what I love though. When, whenever I talk to Bob, is he's so eloquent. I mean, he 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 explains it in such simplicity. And I think that in the universe of content, there's a whole lot of noise about how to, how this stuff works, and it's always really complicated. <laughs> so. You're listening to Rattle and Pedal, divergent thoughts on growing your professional services firm. Your hosts are Jason Malicki, Principal of Rattleback, the marketing agency for professional services firms, and Jeff McKay, former CMO and founder of strategy consultancy, Prudent Pedal. If you find this podcast helpful, please help us by telling a friend and rating us on iTunes. 
Thank you. Now back to Jason and Jeff. Well, how about if we jump into some hits and then we can dissect what made them hits and share some of that vast knowledge in Bob's head with our listeners? Sure. Sure. All right. So let me quickly talk about, I guess I, maybe I've talked too much about the, the hit of uh, CSE index and re-engineering, but that was obviously a huge hit for a while. And then it was a miss. It was a miss because index didn't scale up the supply of re-engineering at a high enough level of quality that it could, it, it could have a repeatable result with clients. And that's how the firm you joined, Jeff, Anderson Consulting at the time, I think, before it became rebranded as Accenture. They they ran away with that market, by the way. And so did Deloitte and others who actually invested in, were serious at investing in methodology development and internal training development. But Index certainly was a hit and re-engineering was a hit. More recently, in the last 10 years, I've had three clients that have used thought leadership to grow their businesses. One is a small leadership development firm called FMG Leading. They've doubled their revenue between 2015 and last year, not totally on the back of thought leadership, but they would point to it as a key factor. And they do a lot of work with healthcare institutions, healthcare services firms, both those owned by private equity firms and not. And we have helped them produce deep white papers that have led to spin-off articles for them in Harvard Business Review, another in a private equity journal, another in Forbes. So on the back, well, I wouldn't say on the back, they would point to thought leadership as a key factor in their doubling of revenue. Second example, more recent over the last 10 years, is a pricing strategy firm called Simon Kucher and Partners. I don't know if you've heard of the firm. They're based in Germany. They have offices all over the world. They're about $400 million in revenue, USD. And they brought us in in 2015 and 2016 to help them develop and publish a book. The book was called Monetizing Innovation. It's been a very successful book. We helped them derive two Harvard Business Review articles from that book. The articles and the book were published in 2016. And if you look at Simon Kucher and Partners' revenue, and even though they're a private company, they report their their revenue annually. If you look at the numbers, you'll see revenue spiking between 2017 and 2018. So since the time that they've published the book, revenue in 2016 was 240 million euros, and by 2019, it was 358 million euros. Anyway, substantial growth, the idea of monetizing innovation has played particularly well in Silicon Valley and other tech sectors around the world, in part because Simon Kucher brought some great case studies to their book. LinkedIn, Optimizely, which is a tool to do A-B testing. Jason, I think you know that tool. And a bunch of other case studies. So you know, would Simon Kucher and partners say that book, the IP around that book and the HBR articles was, you know, the factor in that growth? I don't think so. Would they say it's a factor? For sure. Same with FMG. And the third firm to talk about, and I have others that I can mention here, but the third firm is Tata Consultancy Services, TCS, a big Indian 
based IT services and consulting firm. We began working with them in 2010 when they were a $6 billion firm. They just reported their latest fiscal er uh, revenue and earnings for fiscal 21, and they're a $22 billion firm. So they've grown almost four times. And we've worked with them on a lot of thought leadership stuff, a dozen global, what they call trend studies on various digital business issues over the last decade, Harvard Business Review articles, of which we've helped them get two in there. And they would also say, you know, is thought leadership the only factor? Is that the factor in that growth? You know, they would not say that at all. Has it been a factor? Sure. But they also have done a lot of other things. They've got great client successes. They have long-term clients. They have a number of clients that are $100 million revenue plus a year clients. So, you know, I don't think they would put their growth, they would say thought leadership is the most important factor, but I think they would say it is a, a factor. And they've done a lot of brand marketing as well over the years. Things such as sponsoring marathons all over the world. New York City Marathon, I think they were uh, a sponsor of the Boston Marathon for a few years. I think they may even sponsor the Chicago Marathon. So it's a firm that has done a very good job with thought leadership over the last 10 years and, and sees it as a key factor for growth this decade. Again, not the most important factor, but a factor. Bob, you said that last statement multiple times, and I think it's it's really important for people to understand that thought leadership is not a panacea. It's a reflection a manifestation of a lot of other things happening within the firm, not only to create a culture that produces new ideas, but then also commercializes them. And you'd mentioned Accenture's ability to scale, if you will, the re-engineering idea. And I do think, you know, Anderson was phenomenal at that. I'll take it as a compliment, not that I had anything to do with it, but being an alum. But there's a lot of other things going on, and there's a lot of things that need to be coordinated in order to effectively leverage thought leadership or intellectual capital. So how about if we go back to, to each of these examples, and let's jump in and say, what was this firm doing right? Because each one of these firms has a different industry. It has a different culture. It has a different level of sophistication, a different size budget. It's operating in different geographies. Let's just jump in. Can we sure. do that? All right. Sure. So let's talk about FMG, right? If you step back and look at these firms and you say, how did they become thought leaders on their topics and how do they monetize that? I think the first big thing I see is that they took what I call a content-centric approach as opposed to a marketing-centric approach. So I believe that if you don't have great thought leadership content, you really don't have anything. You can spend a lot on marketing. You can run all sorts of Google ad campaigns to get people to your site to read your latest study or your latest white paper. And that's about all they'll do. They might go to your site and they're not, and they might read the paper and that's it, you know? They're not going to reach out to you if the content is not superb. So the content-centric approach says, it's kind of the Orson Welles line, you know, uh, we sell no wine before it's time. Well, 
we release no content before it's substantive. And one of the mistakes I see being made with thought leadership, which I think what I call a marketing-centric approach is to is for firms that say, you know, slap together a white paper, give it to us in a week, and we'll market the heck out of it. You know, I see this all over the place. And I think most marketing people know that, I think they know that without great content, they don't have much to work with. But I'm not sure many marketers understand what it takes to produce great content. I wholeheartedly believe that. <laughs> I would say most don't. Most don't because they, they think like marketers. They don't think like business people. Right. Mm-hmm. They don't think like business people. And they, and they don't think like – they need to think more like the, the kind of the consumers of the content, the executives who are reading this stuff and you know have read – dozens of articles on the same topic before and and are saying to themselves there are no examples in this white paper of you know uh, uh, that show the the effectiveness of of the prescriptions that they're talking about i don't even know what the problem statement is i don't even know what business problem of theirs they're they're writing about because they quickly went into the solution uh, or maybe i do understand the problem they're writing at uh, writing about but it's not a problem in my firm therefore this is not relevant or the solution is such it's such a high level it's like a black box this is what harvard business review tells you not to do is to not send articles in which the solution is a black box that basically says in so many words if you really want to know how to solve this problem, call us. <laughs> so, you know, a content-centric approach requires us to put ourselves in the shoes of a busy executive who is looking for serious explorations of business problems that they have, a business problem they have, and kind of a serious dissection of how to solve it with with case examples of companies, of organizations that are mentioned by name, not disguised, and in which something of great benefit happened with dollar signs and cycle time improvements and quality improvement metrics mentioned in those case examples. When you have content such as that, that opens up eyes and that gets the readers, the executives you're trying to have a discussion with, that content stands out among the, the the pack of other content that just doesn't have the same stuff. And that content is very hard. That takes more time to produce. And it takes, for instance, you convincing your clients to go public with some aspect of their story and you know the improvements they made as a result of your firm working with them, which is not to be confused with the customer testimonials, because most of, them will, <laughs> most of them will reject that. Most clients right, will reject that. But if you say, listen, we're going to write a case study about how you achieve this, and we're not going to mention that our firm helped you. We're, just, we're, we're going to make you, our client, the hero of this. We're going to t- talk about how you reduced your product development time for this or that by 50% and the financial impact that had on your company. And we're going to make you are, you know, the person who brought us in and your folks, we're going to make you the heroes of this. That's a much different discussion to have with a client whose case study, best practice case study you want to feature in your in your book, your article, your HBR submission. It's a much different discussion to have. And one I've found that, that usually has a far greater chance of clients saying, 
you know, saying, sure, yeah. Do we want to be featured as a best practice case example? Absolutely. Bob, I could probably talk to you all day and we talk all the time. So that's probably not a surprise, but we got to stop. So our listeners have a tolerance of about 22 minutes. So we try to stop right about there. So what I'm going to suggest we do is pick this back up next week and we'll extend our conversation on hits and misses across two episodes. So bonus episode. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for listening to Rattle and Pedal, divergent thoughts on marketing and growing professional services firms. Find content related to this episode at rattleandpedal.com. Rattle and Pedal is also available on iTunes and Stitcher.